This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy from Westwards. I'm the program manager. Today I am talking to my good friend and, in fact, my very first publisher, the person who gave me the first big tick on a manuscript, which I shall remain, remain eternally grateful for, Leonie Tail. How are you, Leonie? Very well, thanks, James. It's a perfect Queensland day. Is it? It's well, 29 degrees. It's just perfect. The sun is shining. Very you're green outside. You're in Brisbane um, and uh, of, because, of course, when... Uh, I first met you, you were the children's publisher at University of Queensland Press. That's correct. And since then, you and I have worked together in a couple of other, uh, at a different publisher as well, and we've remained friends and we we kind of shoot the breeze from time to time about various things, which is what we're going to do today. We're going to shoot the breeze about um, really the changing face of publishing in a sense, because you, for, you had a long career in publishing as a publisher and editor. Uh, and now you're working more as a consultant slash freelance editor slash agent almost with Tyle Bateson. How would you Not define so what your role is now? Not so much agent anymore. It's very, very difficult in the, the agenting world to, um, to really make the figures work for agents. They need to, you, you need to invest quite a bit of time in to develop a manuscript that you take on, even as an agent. Mm. And so the uh, advances that people get today really just don't have the don't have the um, the club. Not, not big enough, to... are they? No, because no, an agent for anyone who doesn't know the way an agent generally works is they they look at your work that's submitted to you that you, you submit to them much like you would to a publisher and then they take you on and, and represent you but then they take a percentage it's usually what something like between 12 and 15 percent or something like that if you're today it's at least 15 percent right and, and and some are even higher than that because of the amount of work involved yeah yeah and of course the argument has always been um you know if you you either get 85% of whatever the agent gets you or you might get 100% of not very much at all if you don't get represented. And, you know, the, the, the jury is still out with a lot of people as to whether they need agents or not. I know a lot of people, including myself, who have been agented at one point and now aren't and possibly should be. But that's a conversation for another time. Um, so, you know, you and I have... Um, you, you were in the publishing scene a long time before I was, but then you and I have spent... Um, well, it's coming up to 30 years since since we first met. And back when that happened in the in the mid-90s, there are a lot of players still around from the golden era. I mean, I remember my first book council conference, um, Patricia Wrightson was the keynote. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was in Brisbane. And there was um, and people like Gary Crewe, who's still around, of course, but... Then there were also, and Colin Tealy was still alive and people like that. And, and in fact, you were, you worked closer with Barbara Carr Wilson, who um, I believe she worked on some of the Narnia books with C.S. Lewis, didn't she? She did. She did. She actually accepted his Carnegie Prize for him because he was a bit of a recluse. 
Right. So she had to get his speech and then she had to deliver the award to him and he was terrifying. Wow. Absolutely terrifying. Terrifying or terrified? No, she was terrified of him. It was scary. And it was his last, it was his last book in a way. I think they gave it to him for the body of his work rather than for the last piece of writing. I think Although there are moments in the last battle that probably are deserving of Carnegie because it's a very strong book, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, so but my point is that there are a lot of people kind of around the traps, certainly in children's publishing, who were who had a very clear connection with a a very different age of publishing. How has it changed? What's it like now? And, and what do you think the big factors are? Well, to me, that the whole industry, and we've had this conversation before, but the whole industry is changing in the sense that the last 20 years with the digital age, the, 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 the way in which we produce books and, and present them and sell them has dramatically changed however publishing in its own sense hasn't yet found the right format we're still you know holding on to that traditional way of thinking about um publishing you'll want to get published by one of the big big players but i really think today there's so many other options that you can explore the, the probably the biggest thing that's changed is the fact that there are very very few bookstores uh you know with the demise of of the big dimmick stores the demise of a&r um and borders uh, yeah borders wasn't it mm. I'm, I'm forgetting the the names of borders was the biggest thing yeah collins was the biggest thing and in in queensland we had qb uh, qbd I mean, there's still a form of QBD still going, but it's just a, it's just a, you know, a, um, what is it? A, a, just a stop really, isn't it? Yeah, well, and, yeah, and they just sell remainders, basically. But you've still got your wonderful little bookstores, like in, in Sydney, you've got some terrific um, in local bookstores that are still going, but they're not making massive amounts of money. So they're yeah. not selling a lot of books. So they... In Australia, the biggest seller of, of actual physical books are um, uh, Big W. They, yeah. they sell the most and they have a pretty good range of popular um, authors. So, you know, it, it, it is tough to, um, to get published now. Um, but one of the other good things is that there's a whole lot of other little publishers that, you know, have sprung up that are, you know, almost almost you know cottage industry and and they're producing some beautiful books the other thing is that you as an author can actually produce your own books mm. um yourself and you can have that you can have that clout that the big publishers have it's all online all the selling all, all the marketing and everything is online and you as an author if you've got the energy you can do it yourself you don't is, need a big publisher is there not a major Massive temptation, though, for the person who, well, anyone really, even somebody who edits other people's work for a job, that they're going to give themselves a pass on some stuff that they publish that they might not get a pass on if they were to take it to someone else. Like, how important is it to still get advice? People are doing that, but they won't sell. It, 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 people will, will find the, um, 
the stuff that's really good. And you can see that on Amazon. Amazon is the biggest bookseller in the world. Uh, and, and look, they do it really well. And if you put your book up there, you learn all the algorithms, you learn how to do the marketing on, on Amazon, you, you can sell books. And uh, but it's it's not the it's not probably the traditional way. We can still go down that road uh, of trying to get published here. But there's some really great little publishers that are doing some really interesting things. I, I think that Scribe, um, I I think Text, even though that's probably bigger. Affirmed Press needs to be doing some stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's also the new um, the, full disclosure. We 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 work with them a little bit at Westwards, but the uh, Ultimo Press, um, which is the yes. new press opening and so forth. So um, I, I suppose there, there, there are options, but there isn't there isn't the the money to be made. So if we go back to, do we need to have a literary agent? As you said, there's the pros and and and. Against one of the really good things about a literary agent is that they know the state of play of uh, traditional publishing. They know who to contact. They've got. They know what people are looking for. So uh, they are one step in the door of of getting your work published in a mainstream publisher. So in that way, they're good. But um, you really have to do your homework on on on. Um, on literary agents, if that's the road you want to go. Yeah. So I suppose if, if, for argument's sake, you wanted to be self-publishing, uh, oh, yeah. you'd, and you did need to procure somebody to assist you with that. Is that the kind of thing that you do with your organisation, your your company? Well, we will get you up to the stage where your manuscript is good enough so it can be published. That's right. as far as yeah. And then we would advise you where to go. It, look, there's so many options. And I, I think today the best um, option is Ingram's, is to use Ingram Spark or, or just go direct and, and go direct onto um, Amazon and, and publish on Amazon. But you can get both the, um, you can get a hard copy book and you can get, um, you can get the, um, uh, you can get the, the digital book. And there's a whole lot of steps. But also there are other ways to go. I think that writing New South Wales last year had a fabulous um, self-publishing uh, workshop that went on for about six weeks. Very, very good and gave, gave you all the steps to take to, to getting your book published. I think that if that's the road you want to go, you need to, to go and do those courses and pay the money. But the thing is, your book has to be as good as mainstream publishers are, are producing. You yeah. can't skip you've got to do you've got to make sure that it's well edited you've got to make sure that the design is is as good as it can be you've got to make sure that you've got the right cover and then you've got to make sure that your marketing in fact I think any author can do better marketing than mainstream publishers do because they're not investing in marketing at all so yeah, um, uh, yeah you have to have a great website you yeah you, if that's the road you want to go you really have to look at it but ingrams um to me there's you got there the is amazon and ingrams are the two major players in self-publishing today and and you look you've got a lot of intermediaries who'll do self-publishing for you but they're only interested in making money out of you yes so, there are a number that I've, I've seen come across my desk from time to time that as soon as you see the 
name on the spine, you go, okay, this person's paid a lot of money to get their printer. Right. There hasn't been a lot of work in the background. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I take your point on that. I, I do wonder whether, um, well, <laughs> I've judged a few awards over the years, and I've got to say that there are a few very, very uh, obvious tells that you see about self-published books. You know, some the way it's structured on the page and the, the font they yeah, use to cover yeah. and all those things. I mean, it, yeah. it's not quite as simple as that, but that's certainly a start, isn't it, to get that stuff right? Well, yeah, and if you don't, no one's going. No one's going to take you seriously if you don't do do it professionally. Mm. It, um, but there's some there, there, there's some great there's some great assistance that you can get, and maybe uh, James, I can send you some links that you can give to uh, people who are interested. There's um, there's the self publishing. Um, there's a podcast that yes. comes out the month. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, yeah, it's very good. Yeah. And I really, really like that. And he runs a course which is quite expensive, but oh, gee, it's it's worth it's worth everything that you pay for it. I mean, I was thinking of doing it, and then I thought, oh, do I have the time? <laughs> so, no, I didn't do it, but I was going to do the latest one. But yeah, no, it's um, uh, Dawson, isn't it? I'm just trying to think of his first name, but yeah, he's Jamie just, Dawson. Mm, um, I'll give you the links. I, I, I guess the way I'm thinking about this is that when, when I first got into publishing, you know, people would go, are you doing it to make money? And you'd go, well, no. And that was that was supposed to be the answer you gave because you didn't want to have so much hubris that you go, yes, I'm going to make millions. But down deep, you were thinking, I really hope I really crack the big time here and, and end up you know, living the, living the high life. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you kind of also told yourself that as long as I'm writing authentically and truthfully and putting my own, my, my, my values on the page and writing what I want to write and what I need to write, what I want to say, what I need to say and reaching the right people, then the other stuff is kind of secondary. Is it reaching a point now where that has to be really the only thing you judge your work by that you have to kind of let go of the dream that's that is it even harder now as a car goes past is it even harder now to entertain that dream that you might make big money from publishing yeah the chances of making big money from publishing are almost zero and um the only way you would was if you were sort of um i guess um, in Game of Thrones or, you know, those sort of things that then become blockbusters for... Harry Potter, um, massive tie-ins and all that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 You think something like Harry, do you think something like Harry Potter or Game of Thrones is like a once-in-a-generation thing? That No. No, there's... Uh, Brandon Sanderson has uh, written a, a new series. It's speculative. Um, fiction, it's fantasy, high, high, I guess we call it high fantasy. Uh, it's been sold. I'm not exactly sure whether it's Netflix or, but one of those, and it will be the next Game of Thrones. And it's, yeah. um, I mean, he, he already was selling millions, yeah. and um, but it, it's an amazing fantasy. And so, yeah, you've got those ones that go from from page to screen. They're the ones guess, that are making the money. 
I guess from a money-making point of view, that's the that's the kind of the holy grail, isn't it, to write something that is so successful on the screen that people like myself go, yes, I've watched every minute of it, but I haven't read a single word of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I have to say with the Brandon Sanderson, we did some travelling recently and um, long drives and we've been, we're up to, to book three and there's sort of something like 40 hours of listening. They are mega, mega books, and uh, but they are fantastic. They're quite gripping. Well, yeah. it would be interesting to do some analytics over the, the COVID, you know, the last two years of COVID and so forth, because I imagine that audio books probably have maybe gone down a little bit compared to what, because people aren't driving to work as much as they were or, or commuting. Oh, I think they've gone up. You think, think they've gone up? Why, why do you think that is? Um, I, I think because it's an easy way to read a book. You can be doing the housework. You can be gardening. You can be lying around the pool. Uh, so, so much of our work life has been taken up with reading things on a screen. The last thing you want to do is read the stuff, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and a lot of people use um, audio books to go to sleep with. And there's heaps of websites that you know. Here's the book to read while you go to sleep. <laughs> you know, put you to sleep. Which is it's interesting. I think we, a lot for it or not. Yeah, right. We, it's Charles Dickens. It's one of the most popular um, uh, audio books to go to sleep with, and I can, can sort of. Really? I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. If somebody said yours is the, your book is the one book that can get is guaranteed to help you sleep well. That, that that's not a <laughs> winning endorsement, is it? I know, I know, but then you know how descriptive Charles Dickens is. So yeah. Well, it was all about the serialising, wasn't he? That, that, that's yeah, a, that's right. It's an interesting, interesting example, isn't it? Because Dickens was at the forefront of one of these movements that did popularise fiction in a way that it hadn't in the past. He was really one of those Renaissance men. Um, yeah, okay, that's interesting. So if you, if you were a writer, let, let's yeah. do a case study. Let's say you're a writer, you're a keen fantasy reader. Um, you go, oh, I could do this, which pretty much every writer needs to be able to do at some point and go, oh, I like that, I should do that. Um, mm. What's your mm. first step? Is it finish the thing? Is it start to finish your one, Finish it. Finish yeah. it. Finish it. And then when you finish it, know that that's as good as you're going to be able to do it. Stop tinkering with little sentences and that. Give it up to somebody to have another look at. Or, uh, well, I would say if you if you're talking about getting it ready to send out to publishers. Bear in mind that publishers today don't invest as much money in the editorial process. Oh. Back in the day, James, when you and I were working together, um, we did a lot of development work on, on manuscripts, but that needs to be done now before the manuscript goes to a publisher. They want something pretty much finished and ready to ready to publish. And yeah, they'll do a little bit of tinkering and get you to change a few things, but basically they want something almost perfect. Sorry about that. Turned it off, that's right. So, yeah, they, they want something perfect. So to, to kind of personalize this case study a little bit, um, I remember when when my first book was launched with you at, in Brisbane in 90, what was it, 90, 96, I think. Well, we was um, that at the CBC conference? Yes, it was, the Brisbane CBC conference. And yeah. Gary Crew, who edited it, launched it. And I'd said to Gary at the beginning, I'd said, um, or when I first started working on the book with him, I'd said, can I make a living doing this? And he said, 
Absolutely, he said, but give up the idea that you're going to do one job, i.e. write books that makes you, say, 60000 a year, which was a sort of living wage then, um, except that you're going to have to do 10 jobs that pay six. And, of course, that's the way it's panned out, you know, with speaking or working for different people or whatever. And that, that oh, ability yeah. to diversify has become a very important part of what writers do, which is why I'm always keen to encourage writers to Mm. do readings because and talk about their work publicly because if you want to publish in Australia you have to be prepared to go to festivals and talk about your work right but I remember the um, publicist from from UQP that night and you I, I think he might have been perhaps a little bit more honest than he intended to be um, because he said to me um, that <laughs> through slightly slow speech that um in a perfect world, they wouldn't that you UQP wouldn't have published and launched that first book of mine. That you would have done all the development, done all the editing, done all the proofing, done all of that. Because he said, "What we see in you is not mm. somebody who's written mm. a, a killer mm. first book as good as it might be. We see you as a writer who c we can help develop, and it's going to be your third book that." pays off and that exact he, he was actually exactly right it was my third book do we need to rethink that now or do we need to double down on that idea in the in the current do we need to are publishers looking for somebody seems like what you're saying is that publishers are looking for somebody who comes fully formed and ready to go yeah. like they're not a chrysalis yeah. they're a butterfly yeah. no they don't they don't develop that so if you if you want to develop if you are a chrysalis and you accept you are a chrysalis and you want to become a butterfly, what, what, what are your steps? How do you do don't that? Don't send out your first manuscript. Right, go on. Don't, absolutely not. Don't send the first one. Um, but what you, you do need to do is, is if you've got your second or your third manuscript, I, I my first step would be to get a manuscript assessment done. Now, if you're so in you mean, sorry, way, to, sorry to interrupt you. When you say don't send your first manuscript, you mean first manuscript, not first draft. I mean, first manuscript. Well, don't send your first draft of anything. No. But don't send your first manuscript out. Your first manuscript is majorly flawed. I remember your first manuscript, James. Mm. It had three or four stories in it, mm. not not one, which was fine because you wanted to tell everything. Yes. But it, it was too much. It was yes. just we were in emotional overload. And, and even, even after we'd pulled it back, it was still probably a bit much. That was the feedback we got. Oh, well, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it showed you could write. That was the thing. Well, I guess that, that, that's the key, isn't it? But I guess what we're saying is that with the time crunch and the staff crunch and all the rest of it, that there's not time to check whether someone actually can write. They need to be It needs to be clear. And Yeah, that's right. Well, look, it's interesting. I, I just finished uh, working on a science fiction novel with a published author, which was 100, 101,000 words. And um, and I know this person can write, but, oh, geez, I have to say, you know, it never make, it never, in the format, if she'd send it to an agent or to a, um, or a publisher, it just, uh, it just wouldn't have got in the door from the first page. Right. Uh, so, so that manuscript assessment is the, the first I, I think so. Just just to find because you you love your work, you love your writing, you know you've written this 
fantastic story. It's brilliant. It's so close to your heart. But you don't see the flaws because you know it too well. All those characters are running around in your head. They're doing, you know, all these things and they're talking to you and they're your best friends. But you don't see what they're like on the page because they're in your head and you need to get an objective person. You can't get your family to do it. I was going to say, that's not your mum, no. is it? <laughs> no. Or your best friend because they're all going to say how wonderful it is because they like you and they don't want to hurt your feelings. But someone who, who's who's professional, um, yeah, they can tell you if it's crap or not. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but when I was working on Ichabod, hey, yes. Ichabod Hart, um, Shannon came up, my best mate Shannon, he came up to my house and he, we did a reading, but he read it to me. And it took two days, but he read every word of that book to me while I sat in the corner with it on my lap and I listened to him read it. And that was incredibly revealing to me yeah. to hear my yeah. own words being read back at me because it, you know, it, things that I had glossed over on the reading it myself yeah. it became apparent immediately. But at the same time, I, I, say, I also agree that you'd need someone who can go, look, you're paying me money to tell you not to tell you how brilliant it is, but to tell you what could be improved. You know, and you need That's to kind of right. grow right. a bit of a grow a bit of a hide, don't you? You have to. You have to. People have if you're going to a professional, they've got to be honest with you and tell you, give up on it, or this has got some potential here and you can develop it. And they can do is show you the steps to take to make it better. Yeah. Well, I can I can give you a really good example of that. One of our one of our recent fellows from Westwards last year, um, she, I hope I'm not misquoting her, but I, I got an email from the other day because it's just gone through a second assessment with Simone Howell. And, oh, yeah. um, and Emma said to me, I've burnt this book down to the ground several times because of this fellowship and because of Simone's advice. She said, and it taught me that I had to be tough and it taught me that sometimes all you, ha all you can do is burn the damn thing to the ground and start from scratch. Yeah, have some yeah. faith that your story is going to see it through rather than so i guess that's good advice honestly. although that's painful to hear though right yes it is and and this big number i'm talking because i only finished it yesterday and, and um the the i'm telling her to completely change the whole thing that she doesn't have a main character that can sustain the whole story so i'm telling change a character she actually kills off I said, this is his story, nobody else's. Mm. So I get back to this person. Get rid of all the other stuff. It's his story. So, yeah, story is so interesting. I always think story is driven by humanity, by, by the humans who people it. And I think stories are character, should be character driven to a certain extent. Well, I'd say over 60 to 70% should be character driven because we've got to have empathy for someone in a story to be willing to go along with them. Otherwise, it's just people with swords strolling through the woods, isn't it, really? It is. <laughs> I remember upsetting some people in one of my very first talks that I gave when I was young and brash and full of confidence and um, before I was this crushed shell you see before you. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you yeah, know, somebody, the teacher librarians we were talking to, somebody asked, well, you know, what books, East, the, on the, asked the people on the panel, what are the books you read as a young person and 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 the whole bunch of them said famous five and Blyton and I was kind of like okay so it's clear clear in my mind that not enough uh jewel thieves are being apprehended in railway tunnels anymore that you know <laughs> people let that and 
And I, it wasn't a good response. People were a little bit cross with me. But I kind of stand by it, you know. It's I don't know. I think the discerning reader these days, although who knows with the children's industry, but it feels to me like the discerning reader does want a bit more character than action, don't they? I think so. Yeah. Oh, you've got to have the you've got to have action, but things have got to move forward. But the, one of the what especially first time writers, one of the big things that they do is to describe everything. Never start a story where a person wakes up and the alarm goes off and and they don't know where they are. I mean, Groundhog Day? Please, no. Um, you know, or, or the, someone's being chased, you know, the first paragraph is running through the jungle or running with swords and fighting or whatever. But we don't we don't have an emotional involvement with the character. So we don't doesn't mean anything a whole lot of description a whole lot of information dump about all the past no we don't want any of that we want to get into knowing who these people are i think i always think the first um first paragraph of any story should introduce you to the protagonist it should because that's who we're going with but i mean there are all exceptions to the rule of course i heard someone describe um game of thrones the other day as like uh the Game of Thrones series is being like Twitter, 140 <laughs> characters and troubling amount of nudity and violence. <laughs> well, there is a lot. There's a lot of that. Um, yeah. Look, so, that, well, that's interesting advice, isn't it? So you, you, what you're saying is get the, get the big idea, write it, put it away because that's probably not the best one. Then write the mm. next thing, and 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 then get yeah. advice on that. But there are examples, of course, of people who write that killer first book, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Bryce Courtney's one, I think. Yeah, you should have stopped at the first one. <laughs> you know, this is being recorded, right? Didn't speak of the dead. No, <laughs> indeed not. We can't all be Harper Lee, though, can we? And 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 churn out that one great book from the, from the really. I mean, the second one is, you know. The same book, isn't it? Questions about why that was even published and where it came from, to be honest. But, that was tragic. But, um, you know, The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton's first book. Loved. Loved um, Catch-22 was the first book. Loved that too. I, Just think, oh, I think Lord of the Spies was the first book. I'm not sure. Um, no, I don't. Yeah, so they, they exist. The first book, the killer first book does exist. But um, Michael Gerard Bauer, Running Man, that was the first book. That was a pretty good first one. I wanted that. It did. <laughs> Got pipped yeah. to the post there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, what other words of advice have you got for the young writer or the emerging writer, Leonie? Um, Look, write as best you can, write from the heart. Uh, find, your, find your authorial voice, the voice that's authentic in you. So when, you know, I always think... Um, First-time authors often are trying too hard. So there's this thing where you've got this fantastic idea, you're putting it down on the page, it's in your head, and you write it down. You've got the um, thesaurus next to you, checking up words, you know, and you're, you're writing writerly. So that original idea that you've got in your head comes down on the page. It's nothing like your voice. It's, it's what you think a writer should write. So what you need to do, I always think, is to exercise this writing brain you've got. So, yeah, you've, you, you're writing 
to be published or you would like to be published but also you know get your notebook and I, I'm sure Jim you do this um say for example if you're stuck at the traffic lights and you see um a dog tied up to in, in the in the middle of the road tied up to the you know the the uh, pole or whatever and it's all by itself like what if why is that dog tied up there go home and write about it just write it could just be four sentences or a paragraph or it can just be one sentence of of it but it's exercising your writing muscle no one's going to read it so you don't have to worry about anybody reading it see see a character on the street and they're just really you know weird Write a and I, I know I do this anyway if I'm in a coffee shop and when when you're allowed to be in a coffee shop in a coffee shop and you see these people and you start like well that person there is a banker and that person there is a stay-at-home mum that person there wants to be a stay-at-home mum but has to go to work then write their characters write their stories you know this, this, no feels, like, this feels like a workshop that or an exercise that I would give a year five class but but no. you're saying everyone should do this you should just get over yourself and just just play it, right it's called yeah it's it's like it's like playing the piano. It's like you playing guitar. If you're playing guitar, if you haven't practiced, you you know you're, you're awful. Nobody wants to listen to you. Writing is exactly the same. If you don't practice the craft, then you know you don't get better. And mm. it, it's not just practicing crafts and writing. It's also practicing the storytelling. It's practicing your. It's practicing getting your voice your yeah. authorial voice down on the page that's not forced or contrived but it's it's something in your heart and it's feeling you. comfortable in that yeah, yeah. yeah and that's what that's that's what a, you know an editor who sees your work for the first time so when you, you you send it in that's what they're looking for that's what they call fresh unique voices your authentic voice that's that's what it is now we can't say you know what is a fresh unique authentic voice but it is that it's that voice that's inside you that that's the way you think that's the way you talk that's the way you you are that that's your unique voice and that's what that's what um publishers are looking for and i guess uh, it's it's all well and good for someone to go oh they what i've just read had certain you know had a tinge of you know david david levithan to it or whatever but yeah, you yeah. want to do is have someone go, that sounds like David Levithan wrote it because then it's not your voice, is it? No. No disrespect no. to David because if I could write like David, I'd be very pleased. <laughs> He's got his own style, but hang on, you've got a great style too. I mean, it's, yours is, you know, your writing is unique to you and David's is unique to him. Then so one more question then based around that you know since we're personalizing this one of the things that i personally have struggled with over the years is trying to write too many different like trying to write different things i try and write a particular style i try and write and you know they've all they've all worked to to a greater or lesser extent but do you think that's a mistake or do you think someone should go no i write this and and work on and just write that well it works for um definitely works for lee child doesn't it mm. he writes exactly the same book every time now he's got his brother writing them well i guess but, then, then it becomes that question that we talked about earlier where 
Am I doing this because I want to sell gazillions of books? Or am I doing this because I need to feed my creative soul by doing this process of writing what I want to write? The one thing about Lee Child is that that guy knows how to pace a story. He, he, he is one of the, if you want to learn about pacing, read, read um, Jack Reacher books because he just knows how to pace you know that you know how you have all the different arcs of character we talk about character you know that the, you meet the character at the beginning of the story they have a series of events as a climax and come down at the end the character has become a better person for the experiences or they've learned something from the experience and the one thing about jack reacher is he doesn't learn a thing he's just this static character that just goes and gets into fights and but why does it work uh, the, just the pacing, just the pacing, just the, and the storylines and, and the Jack Reacher fans, which I am one. I, I, I do like a good Jack Reacher book. Um, the exception that proves the rule in terms of character versus plot driven, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, but yeah, and this, it's, it's, it basically is the same story over and over again, but uh, it just works. Well, so, it works, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, that, that, that aside, um, Lee, Lee Child was churning out one book a year for 21 years. Mm. And, uh, you know, and the, he, he was doing it as a business. That was his job, was to churn out this IBS seller every year. And I think he only worked six months of the year. So mm. he churned it out in six months. But I don't think he had much interaction with, um, with his family or anything in that time. But, and then made up for it afterwards no, but yeah look, I, that, that's one format but i i think um how many lee charles are there in the world mm. not, not very many so i think you have to be true to yourself i think for you james you experimented and that get got your brain working and, and you challenged yourself in different genres and and i think that's quite, there's quite a few people who who have done that, um, challenge themselves. Um, but probably not as much today as there was, say, 10 mm. years ago. I think if it's you, much harder. If you get on something that sells in you or that makes you, that is popular, then you kind of keep going back to that well, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Look, there's Katerina Nanestead who does um, mid-grade readers, yeah. uh, Australian. And look, her books, they're funny. And they're heartfelt, and she does a little series at a time, but and and they really really work. But then she has the most incredible heart. If you talk to her, it's like you said, she really loves the writing that she does. She loves that age group, and you can see it come through her work. There are other authors who write for the same age group, and they get a series, and really, it's just churning out the same thing. It sells. It's mediocre writing yeah you know but you know there's i think that's the biggest genre that we've got at the moment is the is the mid mid grade that's where the, everything's selling so you've still got those kids who are eight nine ten eleven twelve who are reading books mm -hmm. once they get over that um, you know it's it's a bit uh it, it their, bit their time is <laughs> yeah that's right Leonie Tile, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, your website is tilebateson.com.au. That's correct, yes. 
P-Y-L-E-B-A-T-E-S-O-N, pylebateson.com.au. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been nice to catch up. And um, I hope that anyone listening who has an inkling that they might want to kind of dive into this world of publishing, aren't discouraged, but encouraged, but might have to come at it from a slightly different angle from the rest of us did. <laughs> so no, no $100,000 royalty checks. To start, no, at least. No. maybe down one the track. Really, yeah, one of the really good resources for new writers is to have a look at the Australian Writers Marketplace. Right. It run out of, uh, I think it's uh, uh, Queensland Writers Centre. Yep. They manage it, and it, it look, it's a it's a resource for new writer or for any writer, but it's mm-hmm. a really good one for for new writers. It gives you all the agents, gives you all the publishers, it tells you what exactly what people do. So it's worth an investment. Yeah, because that was the other thing we didn't get onto, and um, we weren't now too deeply, but just the uh, I got my new membership of the Australian Writers Marketplace a couple of weeks ago, and I had an old book from because it used to come yeah, out of the well, probably still does what from the late nineties, early yeah, yeah I think it, late nineties, and lots changed in, in there. I mean, back then, people publishers of magazines were paying you 70 cents to a dollar a word that's right that's not the that's case it. anymore no, no. <laughs> anyway. not at all um yeah well i think i've got one from 2010 and we're talking 10 years that the dramatic, dramatic difference yeah. between yeah but it's still a really good resource uh yeah and you're right and stories are part of who we are and we're going to need storytellers forever so there's Absolutely. no need to despair it's just might you might need not to appreciate no. some Thank you so much, Leanne. I really appreciate you talking to us. Oh, good to talk to you, James. Bye. Bye.